0: All right, so i got to tell you a quick story. A few weeks ago, uh, it was Monday night, and I was trying to organize so we had this, the right number of people to play in our first, I think it was our first official pickleball game. And so I text Lee, and I said, hey, do you want to play pickleball at 830? And he texted me back, and he said, I'm um, going to have to pass. Holly and I are having a fire. And I was like, what are you talking about? 8.30 in the morning, and then I looked at my phone, and it was 8.25. <laughs> he thought, like, I wanted him to play, like, right now. I was like, no, tomorrow morning. Oh, in that case, yeah, of course. So Lee's allegiance is to his wife over pickleball. What a, what a good guy, yeah. We don't even have to golf clap for that. All right, let's open with a word of prayer. Uh, Father God, we come tonight and we just thank you for this place to gather and for these individuals that uh, carve out time in their day and in their week to come and gather together in this place uh, to hear from you and hear your word and to discuss what it is that you are communicating to us through your word and through the gospel of Matthew. We just pray that you, you would be with us tonight uh, through your spirit and that you would illuminate to us. Uh, what it is that you desire for us to understand about you and what it means to be a disciple of your son Jesus Christ in Jesus name. Amen. All right, so uh we're going to go through chapter four tonight and we have this significant uh shift um, in kind of the 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 first big shift that we see within the the narrative flow and so I just want to let you know that I'm not going to read all of four uh, in one chunk. I'm going to read the first 11 verses because then 12 is a significant break. Um, And so I want to honor that break by letting us kind of take a breath. Um, All right, so Matthew chapter 4, starting in the first verse. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So if you remember last week, or if you don't remember last week, we had uh, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, and then the, the baptism of Jesus with this uh, profound pronouncement um, that this is my beloved Son with whom uh, I am pleased. And that is very important for us to hang on to that phrase because remember way back to very, the very first chapter and we were so enthralled by the joy of the genealogy and we were talking about you know, our own heritage and what is Matthew trying to do through this genealogy and who he chooses to highlight and we talked about how Joseph uh, sort of inherits Jesus by when he names him and takes ownership of him. And so Jesus' fathership, who his dad is, has been sort of in question. But now here at his baptism, we get the, the conclusion of the genealogy and the connection between the fact that Jesus' father is in fact God. And so that is very important for us to understand as we go into this next section because part of what we see within uh, the, the engagement with the devil is questioning of that sonship because Matthew gives it, gives this connection to us right away. Like he gives us this transition of then Jesus. So right, right afterwards, right after the baptism, uh, it appears that, that Jesus is then led out by the spirit into the wilderness. So I, I made a joke the other day and I said, uh, you know we should probably think about this song or or this group uh, as we go into tonight and i played my girl and everyone was like i don't get it does anyone get it yes yes thank you the temptations except the more we look at this passage we we often make it a misnomer when we talk about it as a temptation because temptation carries all sorts of connotations with it that are negative. When in actuality, the, it is more, the word that is used here around tempting is more about testing. So I want us to just take some time and hold on to hold on to the word temptation a little bit more loosely, and you're like, well, these people thought it was pretty important because they used it in the Bible. (laughs) But we acknowledge that interpretations, all of our biblical interpretations come with theological implications. So it's more about what is happening in this testing phase of Jesus. Because this is the bridge between the confirmation of him being the Son of God and and his going into ministry. And so, it, Matthew tells us that, that he is directed out into the wilderness to be tested by the devil, and who's directing him out into the wilderness? The Spirit. So, we have this Trinitarian experience at Jesus' baptism, we literally have the Father speaking, we have the Spirit descending upon him, and him being Jesus right there, And Matthew gives us this grand Trinitarian vision. And so the Spirit immediately is working in Jesus' life to direct his actions. So now notice this. The Spirit is leading Jesus. Okay? Check this out. And what we're about to talk about is Jesus calling the disciples to follow him. So as Jesus follows the Spirit, the disciples are to follow him. Jesus. The question, though, is why? (laughs) Why is Jesus being led by the Spirit out into this place of temptation, out into the wilderness? And he spends 40 days and 40 nights. It'd be hard to spend 40 days and like 25 nights, right? Because like, would he just go back and, you know, kick it in town while at night to get a good night's sleep before he went back out into the desert for another 40 days. Or you can't really fast for 40 days and not 40 nights. I mean, I guess you could, but. What is happening and why is Jesus in the wilderness for this period of time? And why is he not eating or why is he engaging in this fasting for this time? Well, part of it is we look at who Jesus is representing. And we've talked about this idea that Matthew sees Jesus as the true Israel and as the fulfillment of Israel's call by God to live out this connection to him. And so when we think about wilderness experiences, what do we think about? I don't think Montana was around when the Bible was written. It wasn't a state. So when we think about the nation of Israel spending time in the wilderness, what is the very first thing that we should think of? Moses, yes. And we think about what happens. They're on their way to the promised land. And so the 12 spies go in to survey the promised land. And and it goes so well. They have a test. Right? The 12 spies go in and they're tested by God. To see if they will be obedient. Right? And they fail the test. And so then they spend 40 years in the desert. We see Elijah going out in the desert. For 40 days to to fast and to prepare for his ministry. And so this theme of wilderness, we see Moses on Mount Sinai spending 40 days. So this theme of wilderness is not just an Old Testament theme, it is a biblical theme. Because Jesus is going out before his ministry begins to spend 40 days as a representative to, in essence, pass the test that Israel failed. Because Israel, when they went to go into the promised land, they failed and they were punished, and so now Jesus has the opportunity to pass the test, and he does it remarkably well. You ever find yourself in the wilderness, like, not the actual wilderness, but the representative wilderness? So... uh, Nikki and I went down to New Mexico responding to this call that God, we felt God had placed in our lives to, to run this camp. And literally, while we're there, I'm studying Elijah with, the, with our camp staff, talking about how Elijah goes out into the wilderness and the water dries up before him. And the lake is literally drying up feet every single night before me. I'm like, God, this is not funny. Why did you bring me all the way out into the middle, literally the middle of the desert, <laughs> to take away my source of income, which is this camp? You ever find yourself in a place where like this place is really dry? <laughs> and we're not talking about like, you know, lack of rain. We're talking about spiritual dryness where we find ourselves in this place of testing and and We hate it (laughs) because we don't like to be uncomfortable. And yet, this is a biblical theme that we see coming back over and over and over again, this idea of the wilderness and how God uses the wilderness to shape his people to be ready and prepared for the things that he desires for them. Yes? Oh, my goodness. Does this... God, that is a great... The question is, is this mirroring the Lord's Prayer, which we're going to get very quickly in chapter 6? I have never thought about that, but... Oh, Carol's like, I thought of it first. <laughs> but, okay, so let's just take, let me just take like a minute pause on this from my copious notes. <laughs> um, think about that though. Jesus l- literally is taken into the wilderness into temptation, and then in the Sermon on the Mount, he prays to God and tells us, this is what you should pray for. Because you don't want to be here. Amazing. I have never thought of it. That's so good. So, not to mention the fact that he spends 40 days and 40 nights not in this process of fasting. Now, we can talk about fasting a lot, Fasting doesn't necessarily mean he did not consume any food. So, we see fasting today from our American context in this understanding of fasting means you abstain from any food. That's not necessarily true. You can fast in particular ways where you choose not to eat particular things or particular categories of food. Um, for a Jewish person to hear that he fasted for 40 days, they would be like, that's part of what we do is fast. Because fasting is this complete and utter dependence on God for the things that he will provide for us. And so for Jesus to go out in the wilderness and fast is like, well, yeah, that's, that's what we're supposed to do is to, to participate in this fasting. We, today, have gotten away from it because, again, we don't like to be uncomfortable. We don't like to press ourselves through the grueling regiment of fasting, abstaining from something. And so that's why the spiritual discipline this week is pick one thing to fast from over the next week, Or pick a day and choose to fast for that day using your food time, meaning meal prep and eating, to pray and seek God's voice. Or maybe you just literally fast the whole week from all solid food and you just have a little bit of juice and and some water. Fasting is used to get us to focus on God and our dependence on God. And fasting is a very, very powerful spiritual tool. And I can assure you, after about day four, you are not hungry that much. Now, are you going to have wild cravings? You might. (laughs) Like I would crave a microwaved hot dog with ketchup that I had wrapped in foil as a kid and brought in my lunch. So it was kind of soggy. Like, what, what? it doesn't make any sense. I don't know. So Jesus goes out to be tested, and he ups the ante, and he goes through this fasting process. And, and I know for some of us, we look at it as, as the deficiency that Jesus would have found himself in after these 40 days, which is probably true. Or we can look at it as, as the strength that Jesus would have had would have been utterly dependent on God for these 40 days and what would have happened in his uh, life. Because again, we so often have a tendency to overemphasize one part of Jesus over the other. And we typically land on the divine side of Jesus and not on the human side of Jesus. So I know we laugh, or at least I laugh, when, when Matthew's like, and he was hungry you don't say. (laughs) I mean, four hours, and I'm like, I could really use a snack. But Matthew wants us to see uh, the humanity of Jesus in this experience. So tonight we're not going to break up into discussion groups. We're going to group up into uh, small pockets of five to seven people. And the last time we did this, we had some mathematical challenges, okay? So just think this many, but actually this many because you would be the seventh person. So if you have more than this many in your group, may the Lord help you. Five to seven people, and the first question you're going to discuss is uh, right here on the screen. It's also the first question on your handout. Uh, So take some time. I'm going to give you exactly 10 minutes. So if you're watching online, you can fast forward for exactly 10 minutes uh, and then we'll come back and discuss. So talking about wilderness. Ready, go. All right, uh, let's uh, come back together. First of all, fantastic job on your counting off. You guys are. Fabulous job on that. Oh, you can say right where you're at if you want. Um, yeah, totally up to you. I mean, frankly, some of you are just like, yeah, let's just talk the rest of the night and forget. Could you? Could you? Lee, could you just turn the volume down? Because we're trying to have a conversation here. <laughs> so then we get into these questions and the, these tests that, that Satan uh, throws before Jesus. And I know we talked about this last year in Ephesians, and Russ put together this uh, fabulous fifty-seven point, or 57-slide PowerPoint presentation inspired by my conversation about how culture has informed our view of Satan and the devil and I would, some of you weren't here, I would encourage you in the next week to think about when we have a view of Satan or the devil, what is that view informed by? And 90%, roughly speaking, is informed by popular culture. Now, popular culture meaning all the way back Art is a popular culture artifact, and how art has informed our view of Satan is far more than how Scripture has actually informed how we view Satan, and literature as well, and movies. And so, something for you to ponder, but you know, as we, as we think about this, um, many of us have preconceived ideas of, what this being would have looked like who's trying to tempt Jesus. Um, and we just acknowledge that those visions do not come from the Bible, they come from art and literature. So um, So what is it the, that he starts with? He says, "If you are the Son of God." So remember, God says at Jesus' baptism, "This is my Son." OK? So now, fast forward roughly 40 days, and and Satan is saying, but are you really? So the voice of Satan is the same voice that certainly would have been circulating throughout that region. Are you really the son of God? Because we're not even sure who your dad is, but it seems to be Joseph. And so we so often just gloss over that. But part of the temptation is Satan is trying to ask Jesus, do you really believe that you are the Son of God? And he's trying to trap him by saying, if you believe you are the Son of God, then here's some tests. And if you don't believe you're the Son of God, then you won't respond to these tests. And the first test is, This idea of turning the bread or turning the rocks into bread. Some people conceptualize the three tests of the first one going to his weakness, meaning his hunger. The second one going to his strength, meaning uh, his power, the power of God in his life. Or his strength, meaning where he sits within the kingdom. And then the last one or the third one being uh, this plea to his power or having power within the world. Another great thing to look at is how Satan seeks to tempt uh, Adam and Eve in the garden and the similar connections between what he says to Adam and Eve about eating the fruit and how those overlay into uh, the temptations of Jesus or the testing of Jesus. And then if you remember back to when we went through uh, John's letter, his first letter, 1 John, he says, The lust of the flesh, hunger, The lust of the eyes, meaning the second one of, you know, watch this miraculous thing happen by jumping off. And the prideful desire of life, depending on the translation, which is physical, humanly power. And so interesting three connections um, throughout Scripture. So he says, eat this bread. Again, the connection between the wilderness of the Israelites and what does God do? He provides them with food, manna. And notice, Jesus chooses to quote from Deuteronomy to respond uh, to Satan or to the devil in each of these. Then he takes them up uh, to this place on the temple you know, again, and he says, if you, really, if you really are the son of God, you can do this, no problem, it'll be easy. It's like, is... Does Satan G- think Jesus is like some 18 year old frat boy? Like, are you really that tough? Then go lift that car. Like, come on. But notice what happens in the second temptation Satan is choosing to use scripture, okay? Satan is quoting to Jesus. Scripture to try and lure him into a test that he will fail. How often is it the case that we are tempted to take a passage of God's Word and use it to fit what we want it to say? So we take and rip a piece of Scripture out and use it as if it has this power independently of its context and what the writer is trying to communicate. And we use it so inappropriately to do what? To win an argument, to bolster our point of view, to make somebody else look bad. That is satanic. <laughs> You're like, that's a bit strong. Let me rephrase that. When we choose to use Scripture inappropriately, we follow in the footsteps of Satan who chooses to use Scripture to tempt Jesus. That is like, oh my word. So the next time we're, we're lured in, like I think I can really prove my point if I just take this verse out of context. Maybe we'll think of this. I have a perfect example of that. Uh, you want to use scripture out of context? <laughs> So you used, suffer the little children to make your children use yard work. And, and God has forgiven you for that repenting act. And I hope, I, hope, I hope your children have as well. Jesus says this interesting thing. He says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And I love this quote uh, from Bruner. He says, Satan had suggested that it was impossible to put too much trust in God. Christ points out that testing God is not trusting him. Testing God is not trusting God. Think about that. Well, God's going to protect me. Watch this. Mm. Not necessarily the best approach and again, Jesus tells us to not do that. Like, that's the wrong way to see what tr- true trust in God looks like. And then the last, uh, the last one is, is this idea of giving him uh, all the kingdoms of the world. And and again, you know, as we look at as we look at the narrative of Matthew, uh, somebody asked me on Sunday. They said, "Well." Don't you read the Bible literally? Well, when it's meant to be read literally, I think yes. The answer is yes. But there is no possible way that that Satan could have shown Jesus literally all the kingdoms of the whole world. There is not a mountain that exists. Even if you were to climb to the top of Mount Everest, you cannot see the whole world. It's physically impossible. So Matthew is not trying to give us, like, this is exactly what Satan did by taking him and showing him the literal kingdoms of this world. It is this visionary idea that Satan is displaying before uh, Jesus all of the kingdoms of this world and that he can have uh, the power of, of this world. And Jesus' response is, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him and only shall you and him only shall you serve. You know, when you memorize all these verses in Awana in a different translation, then you, it just kind of throws you off. But notice, did anyone, when you read that, think back to the magicians? Anyone? And how they fell down and worshipped Jesus? And how Jesus is saying here, he's quoting again out of Deuteronomy, you shall only worship God, and making Matthew is showing us these like tiny little threads of connection that Jesus is not only 100% human, but he's also fully divine, because we hear the Magi are worshiping Jesus, and if you're only supposed to worship God, and they're worshiping Jesus, ding, ding! And then the devil leaves him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Which is this, again, this breathtaking picture, because oftentimes when we look at Jesus' wilderness experience, we see him in complete isolation having this toe-to-toe battle with Satan. And if you want some like epically bad depictions of Satan in, in popular culture, just YouTube Carmen. Lee and I had this conversation last, uh, last year when we were talking about Ephesians. Carmen did some of the most 80s depictions of Jesus and Satan, and they're all available on YouTube for free. But Jesus was not alone in the wilderness. The Spirit takes him there, the Spirit is with him, and the angels are clearly right there with him. To, to care for him and to minister him to him so that Jesus is not alone and, and this connection of when we find ourselves in the wilderness, we too are not alone. All right, so the next question is, why do you think that Jesus needed to be tested? Oh, here it is. I won't take any of your, any of your time. You got 10 minutes. Ready to go. Okay, well, let's come uh, back together. I know some people some people love this format, other people don't love this format. It's not going to be this every week if you're like, "What happened to our discussion groups?" So um, maybe God's testing you. <laughs> Probably not. Um, any questions? Usually we wait till the end and then there's questions and yes. So all the what I heard you say is all the angels knew that Jesus was God, yeah. and so then he didn't need to be tested because Satan already knew that he was God. Yeah. But the implicate the are you you're implying that Satan doesn't know that Jesus is God? No. Is, that what the scripture is, implying? is the scripture implying that Satan does not know that Jesus is God? Yeah. Absolutely not. That, is, that was the question, yep. Because I thought it, why is that a question? Because I thought it would spark some interesting conversation. If it didn't need to happen, why does it happen? So what I hear you saying is, we crafted a terrible question, and we should have asked a better question. That's what you just said, Right? So the question around Jesus' testing and the question from Satan is, "Does Jesus believe He's God? So is that the point? Why is he being tested? Yeah. That the point? That's I don't actually have an answer to the question. I think it's it it is worth exploring. What is happening in the desert, in the wilderness with Jesus? And who, who would have known what happened in the, in the desert or in the wilderness? Matthew is not there. And so it seems to be the case, because it's in Matthew's gospel and the other gospels, that Jesus told them about this event because they don't have firsthand knowledge. So Jesus tells them about this experience for a very specific reason. And we know that Matthew chooses, to, chooses his stories wisely, and he often chooses to use less words than Luke does or Mark does. So why the big to-do at the beginning of his narrative? That is the question. And that's a question that I'm asking myself as well. Like, what's going on here? and and why is it going on is it because this is matthew wants us jesus wanted matthew and the disciples to see his humanity on display and see that he had gone through these trials and see that he had gone through these testings as a connection point with them maybe so that the writer of hebrews can say jesus knew all of the testing that we have been through. Because this isn't the end of Jesus' test. This is just a very explicit section in the narrative. And notice what Matthew does. He gives it to us at the front end, in this particular location, between sandwiched between his baptism and the beginning of his ministry, for a very important reason. Is it that he's trying to show us that Jesus in all of his divinity and humanity, represents true Israel and what it means to respond to what God has called them to, to to living in this life? Maybe, because then what he's going to go on to do is tell us, and if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, this is what it looks like. And so, Jesus proves to us that or shows us that what it means to be obedient to God is this, to face these categories of temptation and come out on top. Um, We're not there yet. <laughs> is it, was Jesus' biggest test in the garden when he says, if it's your will to take this cup from me? I mean, we can talk about that when we get there. That's, that is a great question of throughout the Gospels and throughout Jesus' life, you know, when we think about our own lives, what, what is the biggest test that God places before us? The biggest test that God places before us every single day is, are you going to follow me? So what happens? Did you see what, what happened? Jesus comes out of the water, is baptized. God says, you are my son. I love you. Holy Spirit comes. And the Holy Spirit says, we're going this way. And Jesus says, here we go. So the question is, are we willing to follow the Spirit no matter where it leads us in this life? That is the question. And that is... What is coming right after this? Because, again, Jesus is called by the Spirit, led by the Spirit. He responds to the call of God to follow him into the wilderness. Then we're going to, I mean, spoiler alert, the call of the disciples is right here. And how do they respond? Some of these questions that we ask are frankly questions that I'm asking myself. (laughs) And that's, I, I think I said, I said this last night in the membership class. Part of the joy of discussing some of the non-essentials is it's like we're playing with house money. And I know you're like, well, that's a game. Okay, yeah. You get the imagery, right? When you're playing Monopoly, you're like, yeah, I'll just buy all this stuff because it's free money. And in these conversations, we have this opportunity to to discuss, in essence, with, with free money. Because we don't know. And for some people, it just drives them up the wall. And, and I, I get that. I totally get that. Um, all right, so let's continue. Now, okay, again, this is a big change. And, and for many of us, we're like, well, why isn't there a new chapter break? Again, I wasn't. They didn't invite me on the ESV committee, so I, I have no idea. Now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Okay, sorry. One, two more things. Uh, one thing is, notice what he says to Satan at the end, um, in verse ten. He says, "Be gone," or "Get behind me." We're going to hear that again. That's not the last time he says it. Okay? Interesting. Also, again, as we think about this, I want us to be cognizant of how pop culture inoculates us to the reality of Satan. Because the more we see characters of Satan the more we have a tendency to say, well, that's not even real. Like this little devil sitting on our shoulder and this little angel sitting on this shoulder. And we're like, it's not even real. Satan's not even a real thing. Or like, I loved the church lady. Dana Carvey, just brilliant. But so ridiculous. Like, well, could it be Satan? And so then we're like, "Ah, yeah, what? You think that's like Satan? The answer is maybe Yes. (laughs) But we get inoculated against uh, seeing the reality of spiritual warfare. But anyways, um, I forgot to mention that. Uh, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So we get this this break and this big shift into Jesus going into full ministry mode. And again, notice that that Matthew is hearing the words of Isaiah and he's like, oh, that's right. Isaiah said that this was going to happen. That means this. Now, when we read Isaiah, we don't automatically say, yeah, yeah, what Isaiah is talking about is Jesus because Isaiah is talking about prophecy that deals with his time in a much more detailed way and it also deals with jesus and matthew is making that connection but the the reality in the whole idea around galilee is that galilee was this outer region so he's not in jerusalem he's not in the center he's actually on the far end of what would be the promised land the first area that was captured and so again, notice that Jesus is starting his ministry where? With the, with the pretty people? With the important people? With the people in the city? No, he's actually starting at the fringes. Like the, the, the actual location fringes of the promised land. And Matthew points that out because he wants us again to see who is it that Jesus has come to? Who does he come to first? He comes to the people that are Way out on the edges, because they seem to be the cast off or the not as important, like the people that live in Farmington. (laughs) That was an inside joke from a long time ago, and Tom harassed me about it. I love Farmington. There's lots of great people that live in Farmington. Actually, some of our cousins live in Farmington. But this area of Galilee is out, out there, and that is very important for us to see because what he's doing out there is of utmost importance. And Matthew gives us—I know—for when we read it, oftentimes it flows together, but he gives us these chunks of uh, large kind of summaries. What is it that Jesus is saying? He is preaching one thing. Repent. What was John preaching? Repent. repent. And we, we can't miss what does Jesus mean by repent? He means to make a directional change in how one is living their life. It's not like, I'm just going to clean a couple things up. It's, I am going to move, I'm moving in this direction, and now I'm going to turn and move in the direction of Jesus Christ. I'm going to move in the direction of the kingdom of God. So when we think about repentance, we think, God forgive me because I have sinned. That's like a microscopic version of what repentance is. Jesus is calling all those who will listen to a complete and utter shift in the direction that they are living their lives oriented towards the kingdom of God. So we cannot miss that. To come to Christ is to turn our lives in a different direction. So often we think about sin mitigation, which is a big Dallas Willard thing. Well, since I've come to Christ, I just, you know, I no longer smoke, chew, or hang out with those that do. I'm married, so I can't say go out with girls that do. Otherwise, you'd be like, "Um, we have a problem. (laughs) And that's actually not true. I don't smoke, but some of my friends do chew, and that's okay for them. I'm not telling them what to do. So notice the importance of repentance, not in seek forgiveness for one's sins. It is a complete shift in changing of the direction of one's life. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's kingdom is breaking in and we want to be moving in the direction of God's kingdom. And what does that look like? Notice, right after Matthew says that, he gives us four examples, and he calls the disciples. And what does Jesus say? You're living a life of fishing. Leave that life and walk this way. That was for you, Russ. How amazing is that? The call to discipleship in Jesus Christ is not a call to puritanistic living. Like I no longer do the things that I used to do. A call to life as a disciple of Jesus Christ is a call to following and leaving behind and going towards. And how do they respond? Uh, let me think about that. Um, could I get back to you in like 48 hours? Because <laughs> we got some fish we got to deal with or, um, or, or the other two, James and John. I mean, we miss this picture. They are actively involved in a family business. And chances are they made good money because they're, they're fishermen. They're, they're active, industrial fishermen making money off the fish that they catch. And Jesus calls them to abandon their family business to go in his direction. So when we think about what does it mean to come to Christ It means a radical transformation of the direction in which our lives were headed to orient towards the kingdom of God that is the cross of Jesus Christ. But so often we're like, yeah, we make it so not what it is. (laughs) And they respond immediately because Jesus says, "I have other plans for you. I want you to go out and to capture the lives of human beings and bring them into the kingdom of God." That's not as a catchy for like Sunday school as, "I will make you choose a <laughs> <laughs> I don't sing. I sang once with a microphone on in front of a church in Centerville, South Dakota, because they made me, because I was leading the service, and it was terrible. So often we hear this fissures of of human beings and, and we miss out on the magnitude of that. Immediately they leave the boat. Notice what Jesus is calling these people to in familial relationships because this is going to come back. And then he gives us this other little synopsis. What is Jesus doing? He's, he's going throughout this whole region, teaching in their synagogues. He's going to the Jews and he's teaching in their home court, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand. This would have blown their doors off. He just said, I'm here, so convert to me. All right? We're going to all bow our heads, close our eyes, we're going to raise our hands. That's part of what he did. But what does he do? Check this out. Healing every disease and every affliction among the people. A what? Like he just shut all the hospitals down in Galilee. Like Nate Dogg showed up to work and he's like, where is everybody? (laughs) There are no emergencies coming to me. Like, well, Jesus is in town, you know? Everyone's healed. You think that got anybody's attention? Everyone is healed. It wasn't just about repentance. It was about restoration in the here and the now. How incredible is that? And I know this so easily can devolve into health and wealth, prosperity gospel. Just believe in Jesus Christ, and everything that is wrong in your life will be fixed. Your pantry will be full. You will no longer limp, and people will stop asking you about your limp, and you'll just be fixed. Praise God! (laughs) So I am well aware. I mean... (laughs) Literally, I am physically aware (laughs) that following Jesus Christ does not take away all of our ailments. I am (laughs) profoundly aware of that. What is Matthew trying to communicate to us? When the kingdom of God breaks in, everything changes. Everything changes. And who gets healed? Those with money, those with power, those with clout, those with, that, that say the right things, those that do the right things. Matthew gives us this synopsis right here in these short few verses before we even get into the Sermon on the Mount, that God is healing, Jesus is healing all of these people. Where at? All over this whole big region that you're like, what is he doing out there? Because he goes to them first. And that should cause us to say, where do I go first? Where does God call me first? To the people that are going to benefit my life? To the people that are going to make me look better? You know, we have this opportunity to volunteer and, and to partner with the warming shelter these homeless people, these unhoused individuals that live in our community that are going to give us nothing in return. They're not going to start showing up at Timberwood Church and start donating loads of money. They don't have anything. That's who Jesus goes to First to bring about restoration in the present. And so if we are following Jesus, he's going to take us places. Where we're like, uh, I don't know if that's necessarily where we should be going. All right. Next set of questions talking about the call of God on our lives to follow him, I'll give you some, some time. All right, let's uh, come back together. Um, one thing, I, two things I need to mention. Um, if you have children that are in the youth group, meaning sixth through twelfth grade, the sign-up for fall retreat ends this weekend. They're probably not going to tell you until Sunday night, <laughs> at about ten thirty, when you're probably sleeping. So just say, "Hey." Do you want to go to the retreat? And are you signed up? Because we need to do that. So make sure you do that. And then, if you are under the age of thirty, which is not me, tomorrow night there's a bonfire out back. So, yeah, I mean you're invited. I'm not checking IDs. Yeah. All right. Uh, questions? Yes. Follow me, is that a rabbinical thing? Yeah. Actually, it's the opposite of that. Because rabbis, they didn't go and seek out students. Students sought them out and said, can I be your student? I that they were no, they were not chosen. Jesus' move here is so out of the ordinary because you would have, wanted, you would have gone to Jesus and said, I want to be your student. And instead, he goes To these people and says, You should be my student. So when the guy in the Gadarenes comes and says, Let me go with you after the Mm field, and he says, No, you stay here and tell people about me here, was he denying him the ability to come because he wasn't Jewish or because he wanted a witness over here? Was the guy in the Gadarenes, was he? Denied because he didn't meet a certain standard. Great question. Don't want to spoil it. We'll get there. Other questions? Or just general thoughts? Um, again... Uh, you know, we're trying some new things this year. For those of you who missed that announcement and are like, Me, uh, next week we'll be back into our discussion groups. We're going to do this every once in a while. I know some people super love this um, opportunity to be with various individuals. Um, so you can rest assured that we're not going to do this every week. You know, when I think about this call of Jesus, uh, again, to follow him, you know, oftentimes, Throughout Nicky and I's life, when we go skiing, I, I just say, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Just follow me. <laughs> that doesn't always go well. <laughs> In fact, uh, we followed our friend. This is We were dating at the time, and he's like, oh, yeah, it's fine. Just follow me. We'll be fine. I think to this day when she wakes up in cold sweats, it's from that day. And it was not my fault. But how often is it the case that Jesus calls us and he says, follow me into this place. And we're just like, but what if I don't want to? What if I don't want to follow you? Because you're going into a place that I don't really know if I want to go into. that's what it means to be a disciple is to follow after Jesus wherever he's leading us and he's going to lead us into places that that we in our deepest fleshly selves don't necessarily want to go but do we trust that he's taking us where we need to be that is the question let's pray Father God, we come uh, to you tonight, and we just are, again, so grateful for your word and, and for how you have given us your word, and you have sustained it throughout the centuries so that we know you, and we know your Son, and we know how you have acted, how you have chosen to relate to us as human beings how you have desired so deeply to be in relationship with us. Jesus, that you have gone through all of these things. And by your Spirit, you call us out of our places into your track to follow you. Holy Spirit, may we seek to follow you one day, one moment at a time, as we desire to be your disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, One last thing. There is one more question, if you notice, we didn't get to. So love for you to ponder that. Maybe um, throughout the week when you're fasting, you can ponder that question.